Well, please be seated, and as you do, allow me to say good morning. It's great to be together and a joy to worship God with you, and a joy to be able to open up the Bible and uh, preach from an amazing passage in Psalm chapter 30. If you're visiting today, we're working our way not through the entire Psalter, which is 150 chapters, so we'd be here for a very long time, but right now we're just doing book one of the Psalter, which is Psalms 1 through 41. And so we're kind of nearing the end of this series, and then we're going to jump back into the New Testament after this. But it's been a joy to journey together through the Psalter up to this point and allow God to speak to us and minister to us in so many different ways about our life experience and our experience of our walk with the Lord. Now, book one of the Psalter is largely filled with psalms of lament. And so we've been spending a lot of time as a church family in these psalms that are kind of solemn and they're lower and they're emotional and they're written from a place of pain. They're written from a place where the psalmist really, really is in distress and he needs the Lord to step up and intervene into his circumstances, otherwise all hope is lost. That's what so many of these psalms have been so far. And so when we come to psalms like this one, Psalm 30, which is a psalm of praise, I feel like they really stand out. The stars shine brightest on the darkest of nights. And that's sort of how Psalm 30 feels. The surrounding psalms in book one of the Psalter help to accentuate the joy and the celebration of Psalm 30. Here we can tell that the poet David is not sullen. He's not downcast. He's ready to celebrate. He wants to praise God. He wants to get the whole church singing. He wants to come sit at the front row, if you will, and just raise his hands and just start shouting praises to the God of his salvation. He's in a happy place in Psalm chapter 30. Notice out of the gates, he extols the Lord, which is another word for praise. He's praising the Lord in verse 1. And then if you drop down to verse Uh, verse 4, he's calling on the whole community to join him in praising God. Finally, in verse 12, as he concludes this beautiful poem, he's pledging there to continue to praise the Lord for the rest of his life. This is a psalm of praise. The structure of this psalm, we're going to break it into three parts this morning. Uh, Verses 1 through 5, we see here David rejoices in his healing. And then in verses 6 through 10, David's going to go back. He's going to recall his hardship. And he's going to share with the congregation the trouble that God had delivered him from. And then he's going to return once again to rejoicing in God's healing. So let's take this in order. We're going to begin here with verses 1 through 5. David rejoices in his healing. Look at verse 1 again. He begins, he says, I will extol you, O Lord, For you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So David here says, I'm going to extol the Lord. I'm going to praise the Lord because in response to my prayers, God healed me. I cried out in a time of distress, and God answered me, and he healed me, and he delivered me from that time of distress, and I'm not just going to walk away 
and ignore the Lord. I'm going to come back to God now and I'm going to praise Him for His healing. Now, many commentators take this to mean that David was facing a severe illness, which is quite likely. Other commentators suggest that the word healed here is used poetically and is just describing hardship in general. I personally take it to be referring to physical illness, that David was at a point where he was very sick and he prayed to the Lord and the Lord delivered him. But we can apply this psalm and we can pray this psalm regardless of what kind of hardship we face. So there's broad application here. The illness here, though, was severe. We see that because David, he felt as though he was actually on death's doorstep. But you've got to remember, that was a much easier place to be in 3,000 years ago than it is today. When we think about an illness that is life-threatening, we think of things like stage 4 cancer. We think of certain types of disease that are life-threatening. But think about life 3,000 years ago, when there weren't antibiotics and other uh, things that you could treat yourself with. People could get a simple infection, and that could lead to their death if their body wasn't able to fight it off. And so lots of people never even made it to adulthood in the ancient world. They died as children. And most people who lived a long life probably had multiple moments of sickness in their life where they didn't know how it would turn out. Their body was fevering and fighting against it, and there was really nothing they could do but pray and hope that they would recover. And so believers throughout the centuries were not as fortunate as us to run to urgent care, right? Take a quick prescription and boom they're better they felt as though they were going to die and David was in that place we know that because he says as much in verse 3 where he talks about how God brought him up from Sheol a generic word that means the place that the dead go he says from among those who go down to the pit which is a metaphor in the Old Testament for death and it's a word that often refers to a well in the Old Testament in the Hebrew language so it's as if you drop down into a pit, and that's why in verse 1, David could say there that God drew him up. Another expression that refers to drawing water out of a well. David saying, I was all the way down at the bottom of the well where the dead people are. I was at the end of my rope, but guess what? The Lord threw the bucket in, he threw the lifeline down, and he got me and he drew me up out of the pit. God had saved him from death. And God's healing gives David two reasons to praise him. The first one is what I'm already describing. He wants to praise the Lord because God saved his, saved his life. He was scared he was going to die. But the second reason is also given to us there in verse 1. So on one hand, again, you have drawn me up. You've saved me from death. But look at verse 1 again. The second reason is, he says, And you have not let my foes rejoice over me. So David's saying, I'm going to praise the Lord because God saved my life, and I'm going to praise the Lord because God silenced my enemies. Who are these foes? Who are these enemies? Well, we don't know exactly, but evidently these were people who looked at David and they assumed God's given up on this guy. Clearly God's given up on this guy because God's letting him die. So God's over David, and we are too. But it's even more sinister than that. They're not just siding against David, they're actually rejoicing, they're celebrating. That word rejoice is another word for praise. David in this psalm is praising God, that's where praise should go. These people are praising David's decline. They're rejoicing over the fact that David is going to die, at least so they think. 
Did you know that there are people who get pleasure from your pain? Isn't that a crazy thought? That your demise is their delight. When you fall, when tragedy strikes you, that in a really twisted way, there are some people who are glad that you get laid off or demoted or that something happened to you and your perfect life that you had is now crumbling apart. There are certain people in the world who take pleasure in that. Here this man is on the verge of dying and instead of these people being empathetic toward David, they're excited about it. They're rejoicing over it. And we as fallen human beings always need to check our own hearts, make sure that we're not these types of people. Sometimes there are people in our lives where if we're being honest with ourselves, we do like to see the demotion happen to them. We do like to see some rain on their parade. And yet that's not the way of Christ. That's not Jesus' way. God says in Ezekiel 33, 11, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's not looking at, even, even when the wicked bring it upon themselves, God's heart is not to take pleasure in that. He's not delighting in that. And didn't Jesus teach us to pray for those who persecute us, to bless our enemies and love our enemies? Here's how the, the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 12, 17 through 21. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but get, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, he writes, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And now he's going to teach us what we should do. To the contrary, he writes, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. Now, I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you because you're no different than me. I need help with that. <laughs> I need help with that. I need grace to have a heart like that. And guess what? As we put our faith in Jesus Christ and he saves us, his spirit dwells inside of us and begins transforming us so that we can actually live this new way because left to our own devices, again, we're going to take pleasure in other people's pain at times rather than empathizing and loving and praying for people during their hardships. And notice as we shift to verse 4, that David here wants the whole community to share in his joy, and he wants them to join in his worship. He says, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. So now his personal praise in verse 1, where he says, I will extol the Lord, is working its way out corporately, and he's saying, guys, all of you holy ones, all of you saints, sing praises to the Lord and give thanks to his holy name. And we can just take that as a command for all of us who are Christians, all of us who are saints, meaning that we are holy ones, we are sanctified, we have been set apart by the Lord for the express purpose of glorifying him, of singing his praises, of extolling him. And so we should be a people who hear that summons in Psalm 30, verse 4, to sing praises to the Lord, and we say, sign me up for that. He's worthy of my praise. I want to be a worshiper. I want to praise the Lord. I want to thank the Lord continuously. Let us make our voices heard among the chorus of the faithful. Let us be numbered among those who lift their voices to the one who is worthy of all praise and glory and honor 
forever. And not just that. Let our songs often be songs of thanksgiving. Do you notice how he says that in verse 4? Now there is a place in our music and in our public worship as Christians for other types of music. They don't all have to be thank you, thank you, thank you. There's a place for lament as we've been learning in the Psalter. But our worship and our, our public singing should be predominantly marked by thanksgiving. And in fact, when you think about worship, music, and you think about the songs that we sing, so many of them are rooted in thanksgiving, and that's a good impulse. Because thanksgiving is our response to what God has done. So the more profoundly we understand the gospel and how Christ has rescued us and saved us from sure destruction, the more thankful we'll be. So it's really simple math here, right? The, the, the more I understand the equation of what God did to save me, the more weighted my music is going to become in the direction of thanksgiving and gratitude. David is thankful and he's a worshiper in Psalm 30 because of what? Because God healed him. God saved him. God delivered him from death. Family, never does a day go by when the words of Psalm 30 aren't true for us. That God has brought up our souls from Sheol. And not just physical death. Real death. Spiritual death. The death of your soul. As you are separated from God's goodness for all of eternity. That's what our sin has earned us. When Paul writes in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. He is saying when you sin you earn something. A wage. And what you've earned is death. And death in its fullest sense. Yes, physical death. That's why people die, because of sin. But what's more is it's a spiritual death. It's separation from the goodness and the grace of God himself. But Paul doesn't stop there in Romans 6.23. True gospel preachers are never content with telling us the bad news and just walking off, saying, be warmed and be filled. Paul goes on in Romans 6.23 to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So you've earned death for your sin, but God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die for your sin so that you could receive a free gift, which is eternal life. Life in God's presence. Life the way that it was intended to be lived. Face to face with your creator at harmony with one another for all of eternity. Should we not be a thankful people? Should our hearts not be able to find a song to sing to the Lord on a daily basis? Well, verse 5 is going to continue to give us more of these reasons why we should be a thankful and a singing community. This is a beautiful and well-known verse. And it's David's reason why the community should sing praises. Look at verse 5 again. He says, For his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. In essence, David is saying in verse 5 that there is a time limit 
on discipline and despair. There's a time limit on discipline and despair. Let's think about that for a minute. Discipline. David here says that God's anger toward us is real. God's anger toward us is real. This isn't fake, but it's not sinful anger. And it's rooted in paternal love. Okay? His anger here is but for a moment. God disciplines us when we sin, but that discipline is out of love. It is for our growth in godliness. Hebrews chapter 12 puts it this way, starting in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Dropping down to verse 11, he writes, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And all the children said, Amen. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, this is interesting because David's not describing here non-Christians who we typically think of God being angry with. He's talking about himself and the community. But the point is really, really important. He says, yes, God gets angry about our sin. He's not just passive. He's not indifferent to our sin just because we're Christians. Like somehow we get a pass and God goes, well, now that you've been saved by grace, you get to live however heinously you want. What kind of loving father would that be? God looks at us and we hurt other image bearers. Just like when one of your children hurts another one of your children, you don't just sit back and say, well, because I love you, I'm not upset that you're doing this to your sibling. You love both of your children so much that you step in and you discipline. That's what a true father does. That's what a true loving father does. But check this out. The reason that God's discipline has a time limit is because God's discipline of his children always leads to repentance. God disciplines us to wake us up And to draw us out of our sin in repentance. Charles Spurgeon said, He is slow to anger and swift to end it. I love that. God is not, unfortunately, or I should say fortunately, God is not like we are sometimes in our sinfulness as parents. Where we're quick to anger. And it's flowing out of reaction and just response. No, God is the most patient being in the universe. God is so slow to anger. But when God feels anger toward anyone, it is a perfectly righteous and pure anger. And it's surgical and it's precise. And God is aiming through discipline to bring us to repentance and righteousness. So David here in Psalm 30 has come under God's discipline. More on that in a moment. But he reminds his fellow worshipers that while God's anger is short-lived, listen, his favor is unending. His favor is for a lifetime. So that means that even when we as Christians disobey our Father, even when we do things that are destructive and God righteously disciplines us, we never have to fear that we're getting kicked out of the family. We are always kept in the favor of the Lord. Your parents might come to a breaking point with you. 
Some people have had that experience. Where children have been ostracized from their parents. The psalmist is saying, if you've come into this family by faith, his favor rests on you forever. You can never exhaust God's grace. You can never try his patience too much. He has no breaking point with his children. He's just going to discipline you out of love and get you to wake up and come to your senses. So his discipline has a time limit, but also so does despair. David said, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Now some nights we all have to confess are longer and darker and scarier than other nights. But every single night must yield to the new morning's sunrise. No matter how hard the night wants to hold back that sun, it can't, the sun will rise and a new day will dawn. And David is saying, guys, listen, this is what all, not some, not most, this is what all of our earthly sorrow and weeping and pain and suffering is ultimately going to end in. There will be a sunrise. There will be a new day that dawns and that breaks through. And our weeping and our sorrow and our mourning will be replaced with what? What does it say? With joy. Not just with, okay, I feel all right. I'm not crying anymore. I'm not overwhelmed with grief. No, no, no. We're going to be filled with joy. We're going to be exuberant. We're going to be permanently happy because of the Lord. All earthly suffering for those who are in Christ has a time limit. The New Testament sheds more light on this and adds even deeper meaning to this than David could have written about. In John 16, Jesus says this, starting in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament... But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then Jesus uses this metaphor. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And then Jesus says, so it is for you. He says, so also, you have sorrow now. This is life here now. It's filled with sorrow. He says, but I will see you again. He's coming back. And he says, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Right now in this life, people can steal our joy. Circumstances can steal our joy. But Jesus says when he returns and we see him again, we'll be filled with joy. And it's a joy that cannot be taken. Because Jesus has it secured. Or think in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here's Paul in verses 8 and 9. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul sounds like he's having a tough week, right? He's saying things are falling apart in every single direction, but he's holding on to hope because he goes on in verse 16 to say this. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And he says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison 
As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, the here and now, are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul's looking at his life marked by suffering, and he's saying, I'm not going to lose heart. Because one day all of this suffering will expire, has an expiration date, and my future will be one that I can only describe as an eternal weight of glory. This is some good news for us this morning. This is an amazing, amazing psalm, Psalm 30. But at verse 6, David shifts for a minute, and he begins to now recall his hardship. So he's already celebrating he's been delivered, but now he's going back in time to inform the other worshipers of where he's been, what God delivered him from. So we're going to get backstory here. What led to David's illness and how he cried out to God for healing. Look at verses 6 and 7. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Is that a weird verse to you guys? Is that a scary statement to make? It sounds quite proud. I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. And then in verse 7 he says, By your favor, O Lord. You made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. In verse 6, we get an incredible key to Psalm chapter 30. We learn the nature of the problem. And it's very simple. When things were going awesome in David's life, when he was prospering and life was going amazingly, he was overcome with pride and self-confidence. He lost sight of what was true, namely, that it is by your favor, O Lord, that you made my mountain stand strong. And family, this is a warning to us when things are going well. When everything is going great in life, there is a strong temptation to stop attributing all of your success and all of your prosperity to the Lord and start looking at what you've done and saying in your prosperity... I shall never be moved. This company that I've built is way too secure. This could handle any economic downturn. My marriage is way too awesome. We've been investing in this for 25 years. We raised kids together. We've got nothing to worry about. There's a strong temptation here that when we are successful, when we are healthy, when things are going wonderful, To all of a sudden lose sight of God. And the wisdom literature of the Old Testament warns against this in multiple places. Peter Craigie, a renowned Old Testament scholar, says this. He says, the psalmist fell prey to that false sense of confidence which so easily besets those whose lives have been attended by health and prosperity. It's so true. When When we're going through hardship and difficulty... We have urgent reason to pray and to cry out to God and to be dependent. But when we have no enemies in front of us and we've got no challenges to face, we just can become self-confident. And we can become prideful and we can think that we don't need the Lord. And so this led to what one commentator called redemptive abandonment. God hid his face. I love that expression, redemptive abandonment. God hid his face, but it was a redemptive hiding. God was doing something by disciplining David 
to draw David, to redeem David out of his foolishness. Now in the Old Testament, when God's face is upon a person, that means that that person has God's favor and God's protection. So the opposite of that, if God hides his face from you, it means that you are now having God's protection lifted from you so that something could happen to you. And this is what David was facing. So what am I saying here? That God sent this illness or this hardship in Psalm 30 to discipline David? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Am I also saying then that every sickness or every hardship is sent by the Lord as an act of discipline? No, certainly not. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But I'm, I'm wanting us to understand this. That nothing is off the table when it comes to God getting our attention and training us in righteousness. God knows each of us, right? He has made us. And he knows the exact pressure points that need to be pushed in each one of us to wake us up and to draw us closer to him. Just like a parent, if you have multiple children, as your parenting improves and develops over the years, you oftentimes learn that you can't discipline all of your children in exactly the same ways. What might work really effectively for one child is not quite as effective for another child. So you employ other strategies, and a parent oftentimes has quite a large work belt full of tool, tools in how they discipline their children. And the same thing is true with the Lord. He knows us. And God has a very large tool belt. And he looks and he says, what do I need to use to get the attention of this particular son or daughter of mine? What pressure points do I need to push on that will alert them? to the dangerous path that they're on right now so that I can redeem, I can rescue them and bring them back to me. I know some of you are thinking, and this is a legitimate question, well, how do we know if a particular sickness or a particular hardship in our life is rooted in sin or not? Like, how would we actually know what's behind it? And the answer to that question is this, that we probably won't know with 100% certainty whether it is or it isn't. I mean, unless God were to speak to you in a way and just make that abundantly clear, like do you remember when Nathan came and called out David for his adultery and his murder? Remember, Nathan comes with a word from God and just says, you are the man. So David didn't have to pontificate and spend time like a mystic in the wilderness for six years to figure out like what's going on here, what's wrong here. He knew your sin is the problem, David. Get rid of it. For us, though, oftentimes we're not going to know with 100% certainty. But I would say that, that what we should do is anytime we're faced with challenge, hardship, even sickness, a serious sickness in our life, at the very least, that should cause us to come before the Lord and say, Lord, are there things that you're trying to reveal to me, whether it's sinful or otherwise? Maybe pray the prayer of David elsewhere. Lord, search me and try me and see if there be in me any grievous way. Like David was saying there, I'm not totally sure if I'm in sin or not, but God, ex expose that to me. Make that known to me. That's a wonderful prayer to pray at different points in our life when we're facing hardship. And just saying, Lord, I'm open to you. 
Because through all of our challenges, whether it's sickness or otherwise, God is always trying to teach us things. He's trying to reveal things in our hearts because he's trying to make us more like Christ. Well, this redemptive abandonment worked because it led David back to God. Verses 8 through 10 are his prayer that he prayed during his illness. He said, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Now, David makes a really interesting argument here, one that most of us wouldn't make probably. But he's basically saying, Lord, heal me, deliver me, because it's to your advantage. The word profit there is a commercial term. This is a business term. And he says, Lord, what profit is there if I die? Why, why does he think that's a persuasive argument? Well, he says, because if, if you just let me die right now, then you're going to lose one worshiper and you're going to lose one witness. Do you really want to do that, Lord? Lord, save me for your sake so that I can continue to give you glory and tell of your faithfulness to more and more people. Now, as Christians, we're familiar with Paul who would say, well, for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's awesome. It's wonderful if God lets me die insofar as it allows me to be in his presence where I will continue to worship him forever, right? So we look at this and go, this is kind of confusing. But this should just remind us that the Jews had an underdeveloped view of the afterlife at this point. They, they didn't have the clarity that we have on this side of the empty tomb. They didn't have the clarity that we have with the New Testament. And so David's making an argument saying, Lord, if I die now, you're losing a worshiper. This is about you, Lord. Keep me alive. Heal me right now, and I'll continue to live for your glory. But I love how in verse 10, all argument ceases. And what does David do? He just has to fall on God's mercy. His arguments wouldn't hold water anyway. As Jesus pointed out, God could raise up worshipers from the stones. He didn't need David. So David makes this argument, but he gets to verse 10 and he just says in verse 10, Lord, just, just be merciful to me. Just heal me. Be my helper. This is the end of all of our prayers. And this is the beginning of all of God's responses. When we get beneath everything and we just say, Lord, I don't have any bargaining chips. You don't owe me anything. I can't force your hand. Therefore, all I do is I fall on your mercy. And I love this. David threw himself upon God's mercy and he found it. God healed him. And so, at the end of this psalm, David returns now to rejoicing in his healing. He brings everything back up to the present moment. He's in this congregation of worshipers and he wants to say there in verse 11, back to the Lord, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing and have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory or my soul may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So David says, look, this is where I was. I was self-confident. God disciplined me. He was angry with me for a moment. But he healed me. He heard my cry. His favor is upon me for the rest of my life. God turned my mourning into dancing. 
when I was crying out at night and I was bawling my eyes out and I was mourning over my imminent death, at least as I saw it. God took that and he transformed it and he took my mourning and he replaced it with dancing instead. He took my sad clothes, which are what sackcloth was. Those were the garments that mourners would wear. And God took that and instead clothed him in gladness. Now I love this verse because when you think about mourning, mourning is not just sadness, right? Mourning is not how you describe a tough week or a, a, a bad situation. Mourning is how you describe the deepest losses of life. We mourn when a loved one dies. We mourn when we are looking at our own death sometimes, right? Because we're like, if I die here, there are things that are left undone in my life and I'm going to miss my family. We mourn over things like real abuse in our life or serious failure, maybe as a spouse or a parent. We mourn over things that we can never get back. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And we look at that and all we can describe that with is mourning. It's loss. I can't get this back. And I know for some of us this morning, we, we look at this verse. You might already know this verse. And you want to put the smile on and go, that's, that's wonderful. And yes, I, I should be ready to dance and be happy. But if we're being honest, you're asking yourself this morning, can God really turn my mourning into dancing? Can God really redeem these losses, these things that I can never get back in my life? Will they, can I really have these things back? It almost seems too good to be true. Lazarus is one of the greatest examples that Jesus gave in his earthly ministry to prove this point. Lazarus was sick unto death. His sisters Mary and Martha reached out to Jesus and said, Come, heal our brother, heal our brother. So they were women filled with faith. And Jesus tarried, and Lazarus died, and Jesus shows up after he's already been dead, and the sisters are rightfully crushed. They're mourning, they're weeping, they're grieving, and they're frustrated with Jesus. But Jesus allowed this to happen so that he could teach them a more profound truth, which is that even death doesn't have the final say when Jesus is on the scene. He does. And so Jesus, in a tangible, temporal, right now physical way, proved this verse to be true. He said, ladies, I'm going to take your mourning and I'm going to turn it into dancing. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. And he was resurrected in that moment. And I'll tell you what, Mary and Martha's mourning was instantaneously transformed into dancing and joy. But Jesus goes on there to talk about the resurrection and how he is the resurrection and the life. And so anybody who believes in Jesus, even though we physically die, yet we will live at the resurrection, eternally with him. So Jesus was teaching two things there. And I'll guarantee you, for those who witnessed this resurrection 2,000 years ago of Lazarus, Lazarus, they were able in that moment to believe Jesus for the future resurrection too. And say, I'll tell you what, he did it right here with this guy. I'm not scared of dying anymore. When I die, he will raise me up to, to everlasting life. And then Jesus said, you know what? I have an ultimate proof of this. Because there might still be some doubters here. Some of you might say, okay, well maybe he's just a miracle worker and he just did something, he deceived us. Jesus said, I'll, I'll prove it 
ultimately? How about I lay down my own life? I myself enter into the tomb. How then could I possibly climb back out? This isn't a magic trick. And he laid down his own life and then he came out on Easter Sunday as the resurrection and the life once and for all proving to mankind for all time that Jesus can turn all of our mourning into dancing. And that for those of us who put our faith in him and him alone, every sorrow, every pain, every loss that you can't recover right now will be swallowed up in an eternity of glory that never, ever ends. And all that we can use to describe our experience there is joy and gladness. This is the reality. This is what we have to look forward to. I titled this morning's sermon, From Morning to Dancing. I know, real original, right? But this is the deeper truth for all of us as believers. This is the thing to hold on to. Although our suffering and our sorrow is real and it's painful, and God never minimizes that, it will give way to gladness and dancing. As the pastor of this church, I do know the severe trials that many of you are facing, but not all of you. And I certainly don't know what severe trials any of us are going to face in the future. But I can say with the confidence of the word of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that for all of us that are in Christ by faith this morning, there is a time limit on our despair. That all of the suffering will end. One day when we die and we go to meet him, or when Christ returns to meet us, our dark nights of weeping will forever be replaced with the dawn of joy and gladness. And family, even us Baptists will dance. And we're going to dance well. <laughs> it's going to be glorious. How do we know? Because of Jesus, as I said. Because of Jesus. He entered into the darkest night of sorrow, weeping and despair any human will ever face. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He experienced the Father turning his face away. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. For Jesus, weeping tarried for the night, but joy came with the morning. And guess what? By faith, all of us become sons of God. And so what's true for the Son of God becomes true of every son of God. Romans 6, 3 through 5, I'll end with this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So family, be encouraged this morning. God sees our sorrow, he sees our suffering, he sees our pain. And he has a redemptive purpose in all of it for those of us who trust in him. And I just want to say this morning, if you visited us and you're not a Christian, and you're hearing all of these things, and you're hearing about what God does for his people, and maybe you're saying to yourself, I want that. I want to know God. I want my sins forgiven. I want the assurance 
that all of my sorrow is going to be turned to joy. Just follow David's example. Look at what he did in this psalm. He acknowledges his sin. He turns away from it. He calls out to God to save him. And then he begins living his life for the Lord forevermore. That's it. You don't have to go through a bunch of rituals. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. You just have to be honest before the Lord and say, yes, I've sinned against you. And I'm going to turn away from that so that I'm going to start trusting in you and putting my hope in Christ alone and living for you from this day forward. And guess what? You can decide that right now. You could say yes to Jesus today, and this could be the first day of a new life in Christ. And so we're going to pray in a minute, and we're going to close with a song and a benediction. But if anyone here this morning is sitting there and saying, I want to put my faith in Jesus, but maybe I'm still not being clear enough. Maybe you have more questions about that, or maybe you want us to pray with you. Or maybe anybody here needs prayer for anything. Please, after this service, come up to one of us pastors or just turn to another person in the church today and open up your heart to them, and we would love to pray with you and encourage you. Let's pray.